Hey, I'm Don Amaro, and this is Through the Fire, a podcast about overcoming adversity, reframing misfortune, and celebrating courage. On this show, you're going to meet some really incredible people who have been through some heavy stuff, but they've come through the other side. And the hope is that you're encouraged and inspired by the words that you hear. Hi, I'm Don Amaro, and this is Through the Fire. And my guest today is the president of MDM Recordings. In case you didn't know, that's my label. Most would call him a champion of the Canadian music industry, and especially in country music. He's created a space for award-winning artists, but he's also a member of the Canadian Independent Music Association, also known as SEMA. Please welcome my guest today. Well, hey, Mr. Mike Denny, how are you doing today? I'm good. Don Amaro, how are you? I'm good. Yeah, glad to have you on the show through the fire. Uh, we've been buds for a long time and, and also uh, working partners for a long time, too. I, uh, for those of you that don't know, I signed with uh, MDM Recordings uh, about, I'd say, five-ish years ago now. I don't know a lot of your early days. Uh, I, know, I know you've been at this business for, for a couple of decades now. But I had this question pop into my head this morning. I was like, I wonder what Mike was doing before music. Like, what was happening for you pre... Because you were universal back in the day, like you were doing distribution stuff for the Universal? Yeah, so I actually, my music journey started as a DJ for parties and weddings. Okay, wait, that's, that's what it was. Yeah, I did know that, right. Yeah, and I just, my father was a sales guy. I, I always wanted to be in sales, but I wanted to sell something that was I was passionate about, and that, that was music. So uh, I went to school for a couple of years here in Toronto to the Trepis Institute and the Harris Institute for the Arts and Business Management. And from there, I went to a wholesale distributor called Pinned Off Record Sales, which was the music world chain at that point. And uh, I worked in the one-stop division, which was dealing with independent mom-and-pop shops. And from there, I went to Sony Music and uh, got myself into a national sales role for kids' audio and kids' video, oddly enough, uh, as well as non-traditional sales, which at that point was trying to find um, new areas to put CDs into uh, stores. And then from there, I went over to Universal Music and worked my way through the ranks to director of sales and marketing for classical jazz and strategic marketing, uh, which was interesting and uh, kind of where I got my introduction to a fellow by the name of Jim West, who was the owner of Just In Time Records in Montreal, but also had a distribution company called Fusion 3. And I went to work for him uh, and ended up in a director of sales and uh, marketing role for uh, English Canada. And that's really where I learned my chops in terms of how to potentially do what I'm doing right now. Okay, wait, take me back to being a DJ. Uh, just taking 45s and, and before there was all this fancy technology, it was like earphone in one hand and trying to max up the, 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 the songs and the content and just make sure that people had a great time. And I loved it. I made a lot of money doing it on weekends for parties yeah. and weddings and stuff. And because there wasn't really anybody else in my hometown that was doing it. Um, I got the calls to do, you know, the baseball tournaments, the street festivals, I've been to more weddings than you can shake a stick at. And uh, it just kind of, I got to the point where I knew the insert of every 45 of which record company that was and which artist that record company was signed to. Uh, and that really sparked my passion for, for music mm. and wanting to get into the game. 
do you ever still get the itch once in a while to get up there and be the DJ again? <laughs> I'm quite happy, Don. I'm, you've seen me at your performances where I'm at the back of the room, just kind of leaning against the wall, watching people and watching how my artists are being received on stage. That's that's my passion now. This sounds maybe insulting, but I, <laughs> I had this joke run through my head as you just talked. I was like, always the DJ, never the groom. Is there yeah. like a... <laughs> <laughs> you're absolutely correct absolutely correct all those weddings yeah um yeah. so when did um mdm come into existence for you when did that happen uh, i incorporated mdm in may of 2008 right at the height of the worst recession we have ever seen smart yeah oh yeah <laughs> i did i was i was out of work i'd finished my my position with fusion 3 and at that point cds were being rapidly overtaken by um the internet and illegal downloading and all the rest of that stuff and i didn't know what mdm was going to be at that point i just thought that i would start something to bridge gap me until i got my next corporate gig and that never happened and 15 years later here we are with what i feel is one of the leading independent country labels uh, country music labels in canada as well as an artist management company as well too started with jess am i right about that no it actually started years before that i was doing production and distribution deals so okay. in my fusion three days our our office was in the basement of the factor building and I became really good friends with Heather Ostertag, who was the president of Factor at that point. And I was dabbling in country and fusion three with Aaron Perchette. That's where I met Mitch Merritt and Carmen Choney. And we were distributing um, Aaron, but we were also distributing other acts, Joe Hick, uh, Alex J. Robinson. And I was looking at an act by the name of Bryce Pallister out of Manitoba, out of your, your neck of the mm -hmm. woods. Yeah, he's a bud, yeah. And when we uh, when we parted ways and I incorporated it, Heather gave me uh, documentation and, and uh, enough for me to fly to Winnipeg, which is probably where the first time I met you, to go to the CCMAs when Winnipeg was a CCMA host in 2008. Mm -hmm. And from there, I came home with two uh, established artists, Melody Doan and Julian Austin, and I had three um, brand new acts, Joe Hick, Bryce Pallister, and Alex J. Robinson. That allowed me to get MDM recordings up and off the ground. That was in 2008. And then from there, Mitch Merritt, about a year later, after uh, he had finished up with Aaron, sent me demos of Chad Brownlee um, right. doing Zach Johnson type stuff. And I was like, if you know, you can convince Chad that we can make a run at it in the country genre in Canada, then I'm all in, let's partner. And, and we did. And then about a year later on a Saturday morning, I was scrolling through Facebook and came across a 19 year old Jess Moskaluk with uh, two videos that she had posted that had half a million views uh, on each of them. And that kind of started my process of trying to figure out how to reach out to Jess and, and eventually get her signed to MDM, which we did. And from my perspective too, like you guys have had a great partnership in her run as as one of the female country queens in Canada. Yeah, it has been an amazing run, and I mean, we are still working together. I was forty six when we started working together. I'm sixty one now. I'm not going to tell you how old Jess is, but <laughs> that is a substantial amount of time to be working with one artist. It normally does not last that long. 
Uh, and I'm grateful for everything that we have been able to accomplish with Jeff's. Yes, there's been some massive highs and some massive lows and all the rest of that that always happens within an artist career, but we are business partners. Um, I knew early on that I didn't want to lose Jess to the major labels, so I did a deal with her um, that gave her ownership in her masters, um, as well as myself owning some of her masters, which I knew was another deal she would never get anywhere else. And we know each other now like the back of her hand. I know exactly what she's thinking, and and she's developed into an amazing businesswoman on top of being an exceptionally talented artist. Just a, a kudos to Jess and a kudos to you because I remember. I, I don't know what year it was, maybe 2015 when they were in Saskatoon, the CCMAs, 2015, mm-hmm. 2016, something like that. And I hadn't met you at that point in time. Uh, I knew of you, knew, you know, obviously you were you were big in the world of country music at that point. And I remember being at Jess's after party show and she got on stage and she said some things about you, just kind of like giving you high praise. And it was so genuine and so true that for me, it was like, that was the only calling card I needed to know that Mike Denny was was vouched for in that way. Having your artist sort of say, we love this guy, is such a big lift for any other artist in your sphere that might come under your radar. Like when you had approached me, I remembered right away how Jess felt about you. And I thought, any any artist is going to praise their manager that way, you know it's a good relationship. And so uh, that was a big, big selling feature for me to, to join MDM in a big way. I love hearing stories like that, not for my own ego, but for my business acumen. I want to be known in the industry as someone who is honest, straight up, passionate, hardworking, and I achieve my goals and my dreams through watching my artists achieve their goals and their dreams. And it's a fine line between the creative side of this business and the business side of this business. And I've just been really fortunate to work with great artists that have allowed me to do what I need to do behind the scenes for their career, but get their trust to make sure that I'm doing everything I possibly can to move their careers forward. And if I make a mistake, and and, and I have made mistakes, <laughs> there, there's, there's no doubt about that over the years, but just be honest with people and explain the situations as best I can and explain the great things that are going on when those things are happening and deal with the issues that come up that aren't so great uh, when they come up as well, too. We're still going, and, and we're heading into our 15th year this year, and I'm just as passionate today as, as what I was back in 2008 when I incorporated the company. Well, I can vouch for you too, knowing full well that you are a man with your heart on your sleeve in this business, because I've seen both the good and the bad that we have to deal with on the daily in this business. And and you absolutely are right. Like when things are good, you know, we know we're going to get a call. When things are bad, we know we're going to get a call and you're honest with us. And um, so again, just want to want to shout out to you because of that, because I think that is, I don't know if it's rare uh, because I've never worked with any other labels. I feel like that kind of honesty and authenticity from an artist management relationship, it's what keeps things healthy. I mean, not even just artist management, but even in relationships in general, just that honesty about when things are good and when things are bad. Uh, That's a real strength that I see in you and that I felt being part of the MDM family. I I have a simple philosophy and that's where I want to hear both sides. I want to hear the good and I want to hear the bad. And as long as it doesn't get personal, sometimes it does get heated because you, you're passionate about your stance and your side just as much as I'm passionate about my stance and my side. And hopefully 
that passion and and airing out what needs to be done gets us to a point where we can move forward. So um, I don't like it when it when it gets hot and heated, but it's also part of this business because there's a lot at risk. You're as good as your last single and keeping things moving in this business for an artist and is it's really hard to do. And you need those open lines of communication so that you can everyone can move together in the right direction to keep the careers moving forward. So. I think I got that from my dad, just being honest, hardworking. I do wear my emotions on my sleeves probably a little bit too much sometimes in terms of social media stuff and uh, things, but it's coming from a place of passion where I'm just trying to move the needle for the artists that I work with. Hmm. When you look back at the journey and doing this now in in the business and music world, um, is there a moment when you look back and go, that was a hellish time I didn't think we were going to survive? Yes. Um, what, what, what sticks out for you? Uh, the tail end of 2017 to all of 2018 and, and a good chunk of the, of 2019. Um, we in 2016 had amazing market share at radio. We were punching way above our weight for an independent label. I think we were something like 6.54% market share uh, in Canadian country radio. So that's of 100% 6% is MDM songs that were being played. And within nine months, I lost Chad Brownlee, I lost the Love Locks, and I lost another band by the name of Leaving Thomas. And when Chad mm-hmm. departed from us, which was the end of 2017, I did a conference call with our entire roster saying, I'm not looking at signing new artists. I'm going to double down on the artists that we have and take them all to the next level. Uh, And unfortunately, different circumstances for the Love Locks and different circumstances for Leaving Thomas um, ended our working relationships with both of them in in addition to Chad. And we went from 6.45% market share to less than 1% market share in nine months because we had also at that period of time given Jess a break. We had gone 16 singles with Jess in a row at Country Radio. She was burnt out. Radio was burnt out on her. She needed a break. Radio needed a break. And although it was the right decision at the time, it took my new biggest financial learner completely out of the ballgame as well, too. So we went from being on the highest high that you could possibly have to being, I should have claimed bankruptcy on the label. I, I should have. It, it was over $300,000 that I was in debt uh, at that point, uh, which was the lowest point that I, I had ever been in the company. And it was not fun. It was not fun. But something inside me much the same way as I got this company off the ground in 2008, just said, keep going. You've got to bottom out at some point, and then you can get back on the other side of this. And I'm on the other side of it now, and I'm so glad that I did stick with it because uh, once we got through it, we went to Australia with Jess in September of 2019 to do some festival. I don't even know where we found the money to get to Australia, but we did, and we got back. And then we were launching her career again, getting new music back into the marketplace for the first time in eight or nine months. And we flew all the music directors to Kelowna and did a wine pairing with Jess's three new songs and then a really nice dinner. And one of those songs was Country Girls, which was the first song that we released after her I Hate Us. And it ended up being her first number one song, which completely put us back on the map. And then two months later, we had signed Tyler Joe Miller in 2018, but taken 
uh, a full year, probably 15 months to get his back end ready. And by back end, I mean websites, photos, Squats. all that. Oh no! Yeah, yeah, exactly. All that stuff you need to do <laughs> to get to get ready to to launch an artist. And we put out a track called Pillow Talking on Christmas Day, 2019, which absolutely exploded for us and actually created Canadian country music history uh, with that song. Totally going number one and being, you know, the first independent Canadian artist to go not number one on that song, but then number one followed up on I Would Be Over Me Too on his second song. We are totally on the other side of the lowest lows I've ever had in my life to um, being on a high, being on a pretty good ride these days and, and vowing that I'm never going to let happen what happened happen again. So when you're saying you should have claimed bankruptcy, you were big time in debt, what is it in you that said, where did you get that from to say, don't give up, keep going. Like, where did that strength come from? I don't know. It was just, I didn't want to let down the artists that were signed to the company. I didn't want to let down the support crew that had stuck with me because there, there was a lot of people that potentially were going to lose their jobs if I did that. And at mm -hmm. the same time, I was adamant that I was not going to bring in an investor into the company because I just didn't want somebody telling me how to do my job when they probably wouldn't understand the ins and outs of how the music industry worked. So I ended up putting some of my personal money into it. Um, I ended up through my bank manager uh, at the Royal Bank getting hooked up with the BDC, the Business De Development Corporation. And although my financials would dictate that I shouldn't have been approved for a loan. I was approved for a loan that got me through a good chunk of the other side. And then just understanding from my support crew, from, you know, my radio promotion team to the media development team, to the social media team, that we were going to be in for a tough few months and money may not flow as easily as what it should. And it just stay with me. I promise to get to this thing to the other side. I didn't know how I was going to get there, but something inside just kept telling gnawing at me to keep going and not mm. give up. And we did. That's a definite attribute and strength in you, Mike. Kudos to you on that. Probably the most stress I've ever been under in my life. Yeah, I can imagine. It's not fun. Don't want to do it again. Yeah, ho hopefully you never have to face that kind of uh, tragedy in business again. But here you are, you bounced back. More with Mike Denny in just a moment. Hang on. Have you ever thought, I'd love to have a podcast just like this one? Well, I can help. My name is Matt Kundal, and everyone at my company, the Sound Off Podcast Network, had a hand in making this show. Whether it was about the sound, the discoverability, or that you're just enjoying the show, we are all about the detail. If you think you have a podcast in you, reach out to me via email, matt at soundoff.network. Or check out the website and become one of the great podcasts we work with at soundoff.network. If I could, I want to switch gears to the Henry Armstrong Award. Uh, yes. And, uh, you know, I want to talk about the bringing that forth with you and, and the MDM team. But the Henry Armstrong Award, for those of you that don't know, it's a $10,000 bursary to an Indigenous artist uh, in Canada. Uh, they have a chance to win that and some mentorship. We had a, our first winner last year, Kyle McKierney. And Mike, I don't want to put words in your mouth, so I'll let you speak to it. But why was this important for you to bring the Henry Armstrong Award forward? N uh, numerous reasons. Um, one... My background, I, I am uh, Indigenous. Uh, my mother is full Lower Mohawk, Six Nations. 
And we never really talked much about Indigenous culture uh, growing up as a child. And, and when we ever did, my mother would just kind of brush it off and just push it to the side. And I remember sitting on my deck on the evening that the first 215 children were discovered in Kamloops. And I remember sending an, a, a text message out to yourself and Lori and, and uh, other members of the team going, I, I think I need to step up and do something here. Because a lot of questions that I had as to why my mother was always pushing things off and didn't want to answer them all became very clear when uh, the residential school conversation started happening and those children's bodies started being found. So. You know, my mom would always say if anybody ever walked up to her on the street and asked her if she was Indigenous, she said anything but Indigenous. And I always thought that that was wrong, but I didn't understand why. And I started to understand the reasons why. So I also was in a position where I knew there wasn't much that I could do to fix the past, but I wanted to be a part of building something for the future. Uh, to give Indigenous artists in this country, regardless of genre of music, an opportunity to increase their fan base, to get their careers off the ground, to get themselves educated about how the music business works, and to give them a platform to increase their fan bases. And that's where the idea of the Henry Armstrong Award came from. Uh, Henry is my step-grandfather's last name, and Armstrong is my mother's maiden name. And thank you, Don, for educating me in terms of just Indigenous issues in this country that I wasn't as educated as what I needed to be in, uh, which helped us get this thing off the ground and get through year one. And, and we are now in year two taking applications for this year's winner that will be announced on National Indigenous Peoples Day on June 21st. And it's become a massive passion project for me and something that I want to see continue to grow not only in terms of getting the word out there, but the financial end of things of trying to find more money to bring into this so that I can get more money into Indigenous artists' hands and give out more mentorship opportunities to create a better uh, ecosystem for Indigenous music in Canada. How does your mom feel about the journey you're on now and having sort of come to face this? Uh, your mom has probably, you've probably had some interesting conversations with her over the last little while. Yeah, a, a lot of interesting conversations, and, and I was fortunate enough to have my hometown paper, I grew up in Niagara-on-the-Lake, reach out, and they've done two features on me. <laughs> and both times my mother has read those features going, I can't believe that's you talking. You sound way too smart, <laughs> which is hilarious <laughs> because I'm just being myself and 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 just talking about the things that I know and the things that I want to change and the things that I want to do. Um, but it has crystallized just in terms of giving me some answers on her upbringing, how the struggles that she had uh, growing up. Fortunately, my mother was not part of the residential school incidents, um, if that's the right word, but it was around her. And, and I, I managed to get some clarity just on her background and her growing up and, and just things that went on in her world that. Um, you know, thank God she doesn't have to deal with now. Um, so it's been a real education process. I know, I'm much more in, informed now in terms of what is happening within the Indigenous communities uh, than what I ever was before. And, and that's part of what I wanted to bring to the table with the Henry Armstrong Award as well, too. Well, I think, again, it's it's important 
work being done. And, uh, you know, my whole MO has just been, and this is a, a phrase that I didn't uh, coin. This is, I think, in my, my friend Alan Gray has told me this phrase, and I'm not even sure he brought it up, but, you know, saying to be an amplifier of Indigenous thought and ideas. And that's something I've always tried to do as best I can. And somebody who's, you know, a city boy, I didn't grow up on the res. Uh, very similar story to you, Mike. My, my mom didn't acknowledge her Indigenous roots either. For the longest time, I wasn't allowed to sort of acknowledge any of that. Not really not allowed, but didn't really have the education of understanding any of that part of my history. And um, again, part of it, my mom thinking, I, it was probably a racist thing within her family where mm. they didn't want to acknowledge the indigeneity. And then me growing up, my mom probably didn't want us to acknowledge it because uh, for them, they thought it was a way to protect us in a way of of the racism that exists towards indigenous people. And And if we weren't indigenous, then we didn't have to face that. And I think for, for my life, as I grew up, I started realizing, wait a second, I can't go on my life without really knowing where I come from. And my mm -hmm. dad's from Nova Scotia, I have East Coast Acadian roots. My mom's from here in the prairies. And I have uh, some European descent, but also Cree and Métis descent on my mother's side. And uh, I've always felt more kin kinship with the indigenous peoples here in Canada and, and in Manitoba, uh, having grown up in the North End, which is, I think they say is the highest indigenous population per capita in the whole country. So um, mm. I've always felt closest to the indigenous people. And so for me, I understand a bit of that journey for sure. Yeah, it was, I didn't really play the indigenous card my, my entire business career. Uh, and when I did, it was never with positive outcomes. I remember when I was in the final interview phase of getting hired for one of my corporate positions and, and bringing it up during the interview process. And when I eventually got hired, and this would never go on in the current atmosphere and current environment that we're in right now, but the person who hired me in front of the HR person said, oh my God, he's, he's indigenous and not only a great salesperson, but he's also good for the quota. And mm. I almost lost my mind because that was the first time that I had really, I had ever felt racism myself. And mm. that phrase has stuck with me my entire life. Um, and just, I think that plays into maybe a piece of me in terms of just how I, I just try to be equal to everybody that I meet. I can't imagine living with racism 10 times greater than that because it, it really shocked me when that phrase was said to me years ago i think it's still happening where where corporations are box checking right and trying to make sure that they have again hitting their quotas in terms of of diversity and i do believe things are changing i think that there's a lot of uh, equity diversity and inclusion committees that that will lead to growth and and but again I've I've said this quite often uh, is that it really is a matter of changing the psyche of individuals to really change the way that things work in this country towards you know people that are different you know indigenous brown skin um, you know people of color and I think I think we're slowly seeing change but I I do think it's things like the Henry Armstrong Award and these kinds of conversations that start to open up people's minds to the possibilities, and again, just softening the hearts of those that are listening. You know, with the Henry Armstrong Award, we're in the process right now of trying to become a not-for-profit charity. And then, then at that point, my goal has been, since I launched this in 2022 with yourself and a bunch of other committee members, was to get this thing to $100,000 a year where I could give out 10 $10,000 mentorships. And that is still very much my goal uh, with the Henry Armstrong Award. And, and we will get there because I'm putting the same passion into this as what I did to 
get my own company up and off the ground uh, years ago as well too. And it's really not that different in terms of just working hard and doing the right things that you need to do and, and just amplifying that this award is out there because we are still working on getting the information into the hands of the indigenous communities out there so that they're aware that this thing is happening and that they can apply and, and it can, and it can be a life-changing program. The mentorship program alone is hooking you up with various different people from the global music industry. And Kyle McCurney has been a great example of that from conversations that we've had with people in the UK, in Australia, numerous people in various different areas in Nashville that have all amplified his career and getting him to the next level and the next level after that. So uh, the mentorship program is probably as important, if not more important than the money. Yeah, totally. Well, I can say this for sure. I, I love the fact that, and I, I think I've said this in our committee meetings with the, the Henry Armstrong Awards, is that it's really cool that with the submissions we're getting, we're getting some artists that I, you know, that we we all might know, but we're getting some that are kind of coming out of the woodwork, so to speak, where we yeah. wouldn't have heard them otherwise. And I think it's an, an exposure for Indigenous music in a big way amongst, you know, the jury's ears that are listening to music that maybe they wouldn't have engaged in otherwise. So I, the fact that Indigenous music is being listened to and and um, heard, and, and we're talking about it, right? So it, it sort of continues on beyond that. And so it's, uh, you know, I think I said this is whether, you know, if somebody wins or not, I think the fact that their music's out there getting heard and ex there's some exposure for it on that level, I think that's a great thing. Absolutely. And and just because they don't win or, or get chosen in 2023 doesn't mean they can't resubmit in 2024, 25, 26. And yeah. who knows what happens as they continue to grow their music, write more, record more, meet other people in the industry. It, it, you just get better. You know, your 10,000 hours thing just allows you to get better and to move your things forward. And I think, you know, you and I were on an email thread last week with what the CRTC is looking at for Indigenous music in, in Canada, mm -hmm. which that's a game changer. That is a total yeah. game changer in terms of a percentage of airtime being allocated to Indigenous um, musicians in this country uh, in terms of elevating the genres of music that they're involved with and in elevating Indigenous music. So it's pretty cool. And when I saw that, my reply was talking about, uh, you know, Senator Murray Sinclair, when he was head of the Truth and Reconciliation Commission, he said, in order for things to change, he said it's going to take leadership and political power to create space for Indigenous peoples. And I think when you see the CRTC making changes and, and imposing those kind of changes, um, it's showing that leadership saying we see this as an important element to elevate Indigenous peoples in this country. And I, I think that's a big thing. Absolutely. I thought that was very cool to see that come across my, my inbox last week. Okay, I'm going to go back one more time. 15 years of MDM. I know what's coming up. Uh, uh, there's some celebration happening. But uh, beyond that, what's the, what's the next chapter look like for, for MDM? What are you seeing down the road? So I'm not 46 years old anymore. And I am into my 60s now. And things change. Like I just finished a radio tour with Tyler Joe Miller that I was out for the better part of three weeks on. And, and I'm going to be honest with you, I spent most of yesterday just sleeping. I was just mm. exhausted. We put on just the Ontario portion was, you know, 3,200 kilometers in a car and radio events every night in a different hotel and all the rest of that I stuff. I think he's and, in my town tonight. I think he and yes, Dale are he here is. today. Yeah. Yes, he is. <laughs> I've been in your town for a couple of days. I was like, go to Manitoba. Yeah. I can't stand you anymore. <laughs> Guests and fish start to stink after three days, Don. So, you know, when you're together for that amount of time you need a little bit of space but um but my goal is still to continue on with mdm recordings we still have a lot of things that i want to do but my focus is shifting 
not to take focus off of what we do in Canada, but to take what we do and get it into other parts of the world. So Australia has been a um, a massive priority for me in terms of knocking down the walls and getting our music and our roster into the Australian market. We've been fortunate enough to have Jess visit there and do a couple of festival dates. The UK, we've been twice to the UK. And as you know, we are now looking at taking a good chunk of our artist roster to the UK for uh, an in-the-round uh, type tour in September after the CCMAs. And that's going to lead us into more of Europe and, and just getting our music into the ears of those other countries where the genre of country music is really starting to explode. We'll do what we can in the United States. The U.S. is a totally different ballgame and unbelievably expensive to work in those territories. But my thinking is if we can take all the good things that we're doing in Canada and duplicate that in Australia and duplicate that in the UK and in Europe, it's only going to help our efforts for what could happen in the United States and the biggest markets in the country. So um, I love stuff like that because you're starting over. You're at ground zero again and it's fresh and it's new. And I'm not going to say Canada's cookie cutter, but we've been, you've been releasing music in, in the country for 15 years. It, it does become somewhat cookie cutter in terms of, you know, your preparations and all the rest of that stuff where when you're in a new country and starting from ground zero, you have to meet the people, you have to get into the territory and do all that, that heavy lifting stuff that you had to do to get an artist career off the ground in Canada. So that's fun for me. It's refreshing. And we're in a global music business now, unlike any global music business we've ever been in. And the opportunities for independent artists and independent labels like myself is greater now than what it has ever been. So I want to get our music out to as many people and as many people's ears as I possibly can. That's the short term for me. Will there, will there be some sort of a phase out for myself? Yeah, at some point. Um, you know, nothing in the immediate future as far as that goes. But just want to keep on pushing MDM and our artist roster as far as we can globally. Hmm. Well. Honored to be on this ride with you, Mike, and excited to see what the next chapters bring. If I'm still part of the plan in the next few months, so hopefully, <laughs> I hopefully I haven't lost the job here. <laughs> we have to have the conversation now. <laughs> it's been great, buddy, but uh, I gotta oh, go, man. girl. I gotta here go, girl. <laughs> <laughs> uh, yeah. You're an exceptionally important part of the MDM roster, and congrats on your latest single, Go Girl. We're, we're starting to see radio come to the table on this one. And we're getting into the music meetings now. And I think once people hear this song, it's going to be, I hope, the biggest song that you've ever put out to date. So you heard it here, folks. Donna Marrow's big time. Get ready for it. Exactly. <laughs> exactly. Uh, man, Mike, I appreciate you, man. I know, I know I'll see you soon for some 15 year celebrations coming up. So honored to be part of this, man. Thank you. Thanks for having me on. This is great. Thanks again to Mike for joining me today. I want to send you to the episode notes for more information on the Henry Armstrong Award. There'll be a link there for you. My next guest is Canadian country musician Megan Patrick, who I'm proud to call a friend, and sometimes I call her a firecracker. And I'm also annoyed because she wins pretty much almost every award she's nominated for. Just kidding. I'm super proud of her because she's super awesome, and I'm going to be talking with her on the next episode, so come on back for that. As I always say, it takes a village to run things here at Through the Fire, and I want to thank my village, executive producer Sarah Burke, Administrators Lori Brown and Alan Grayeyes. Video and audio design by Chris Godry and his team at 44 Films. Feisty creative for their design work. Social media support by Johnson Design Company. And last but far from least, I want to thank our technical producers, 
Matt Kundal, and Evan Serminski from the Sound Off Media Company. I look forward to sharing more great conversations just like this one on the next Through the Fire. You see the light. Produced and distributed by the Sound Off Media Company. The Podcast Super Friends is a monthly meeting of five podcast producers. Hi, I'm Catherine O'Brien from Branch Out Programs in Baton Rouge, Louisiana. I'm John Gay from Jagged Detroit Podcasts. I'm Matt Kundal from the Sound Off Podcast Network. I'm David Yes from Pod 617, the Boston Podcast Network. And I'm Johnny Peterson from Straight Up Podcasts. Together, they form the Podcast Super Friends, an alliance of podcast masterminds sharing best practices, insights, and discussions to help make you a better podcaster. Follow or subscribe to the show on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Podcasts, or at soundoff.network.